Question. Yes. Okay. What is it? Uh, it's kind of a technical one. I just wondered because I heard I've heard you said Krishna conscious panentheistic. You've described it like that, and and recently you called it panpsychic. I wonder if that's like a different. There's a difference between panpsychism, pantheism, and panentheism. Yes. Um, the uh, these are of course. Western terms, but um, the 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 Vishista data of, of Ramanuja is thought by people in the West to be pan- pantheistic. Hmm? A lot of Indian uh, thought, spiritual thought, is thought to be pantheistic. Pantheistic. Uh, it, pantheism is the kind of um, uh, spiritual outlook that Spinoza embraced, or some say that Einstein embraced. Um, pantheism involves the idea that the, the world is God, hmm? in some way, I and mean, different type of descriptions of it, and so forth. Panentheism is um, is is different in that it 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 posits the idea that God is the world and independent of the world at the same time in the world, but independent of the world, which is a, a way of speaking about the Vedanta of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. Which is, uh, what does the ninth chapter of the Gita say? Um, that's where your chintabeta comes there. Everything is in me, but I am not in everything. Hmm? Um, I'm independent of everything, but every, nothing's independent of me, and so on and so forth. So the world is, in that worldview, you know, is, is the shakti, the energy of God, and in that sense it's not independent of him because the energy comes from him, and he's the energetic, um, but um, at the same time, he's different from it, um, and has a identity that transcends it, so he is the imminent and transcendent, he is the world and beyond the world. Hmm? So this is how we explain hmm, the world, largely, so it's uh, loosely you can use the term panentheism for people who are, you know, familiar with such terms in the West to give a handle on what you mean by a chinti beta beta. Panentheism. Um, there is a, for example, in Christianity, there is a fellow, a German fellow, Meister Eckhart. He posited panentheism. I think he got. Um, I think he got uh, excommunicated from the church. For that, but there are some modern people in in Christianity that do draw panentheism from from the Bible. It just shows you how diverse Christianity can be. Uh, most people in the Christian world just can't relate to that at all. There was a fellow named uh, a professor at the University of San Francisco who uh, was a Christian, and um, he taught. Uh, religion, and so 
you know, he also taught Hinduism. He, he taught the Bhagavad Gita. And one of his students uh, is now my disciple. And when he was going to school there, then he started feeding him my lectures on the Bhagavad Gita. Hmm. Hmm? Yeah, San Francisco State. Yeah, sorry. And so um, after a while, he got in touch with me, and he, and he said, you know, like, your lectures are incredible. And, you know, and I, when I give my lectures, I, you know, draw from your lectures, and so on. He wanted to tell me that. And so we communicated, and um, he asked me to be initiated, and um, that hasn't, that's kind of on my clock, but it hasn't happened yet. And um, meanwhile, he announced to the, um, he's author of a few books as well, Oxford-educated man, and he um, announced on the internet, you know, to his circle and so forth that he is officially converted to, to Gaudiya Vaishnavism, and it was a huge <laughs> issue in his world, you know, and there were blog, people blogging about it and talking about it and, you know, complaining about it and so on and so forth. And, having problems with it and and one one fellow you know another s- christian scholar uh wrote a blog and it, it came to my attention i don't know who brought it to my attention he was subtly really cri- kind of criticizing him and and with it pantheism and panentheism and and so forth and i had a back and forth with him a little bit and then i and he just couldn't relate to the panentheistic idea, or to speak of a pantheistic idea, because because of the idea that um, that there's evil in the world, and if the world is God, hmm, then there's evil in God, and so he just couldn't get around that. They 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 divorced the two in an attempt to exonerate God from any evil, so to speak. And uh, I ended up sending him a nice piece uh, written on Ramanuja's um, theology, where the world and the jivas, the atmas, the individual souls, are considered to be attributes of the body of God. It's a very panentheistic kind of outlook. Um, And... It was very, you know, it was a very sophisticated presentation of that he hadn't come in touch with before, and it kind of, kind of threw him a little bit for, for a loop. Um, but it was something that I had, I, 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 a, a several uh, paragraphs about Ramanuja's theology, explained by another scholar and, you know, contemporary language and so forth. And he had, in other words, this idea, the point I'm making, his idea of pantheism or panentheism was just like, there's some savages that think like this, you know. Not that there's any, he couldn't understand that, or he wasn't aware there wasn't any deep theology. And interestingly enough, one of the um, really prominent um, Christian scholars um, who has written on Ramanuja, he wrote a book, uh, it's a famous book, I can't remember the name of the book or his name right now, um, but um, his son, anyway, is the the head pastor. It just so happens at the church. This gets complicated. That Gauravani's wife 
No way. Is the is the female Baptist deacon of or whatever you know? I don't know what exactly her her position is. Hmm. His that might be this. That's not the that's not the father's name. No. No, that's the name of the church. Oh, with Binkley Church. Yeah, I've never been there. Yeah. So it's interesting that she's you know connected with Gorbani and Eastern spirituality, and there's a, a Christian mind. This fellow, his father, who wrote the book, what was his name Clooney? Uh, I can't remember. But anyway, he he's written a really you know beautiful book explaining the theology of Ramanuja with great deep appreciation for that Eastern spirituality and connecting it with with you know essential points of Christianity that get lost in the fundamentalist presentation of you know church going churchianity you know uh, church on Sunday and pray to God for things and so forth that often is um, the most prominent face of of Christianity so um, so anyway this one fellow that I had written he hadn't like heard or anything you know like that and he had a, just I think he had a glimpse of that there are some deep um, thinkers amongst the savages over here who you know who who uh, aren't part of the chosen religion as, as he as he thought of it um, so that's with pantheism and panentheism but panpsychism is the idea that consciousness is everywhere hmm? because generally when in, in, when in the world today when people talk about consciousness and educated circles, they're talking about a human phenomenon. Hmm? They're talking about the fact that humans have self-awareness. We feel that there's an I, hmm? that I am. And they don't sense that that same sense of I-ness and identity is found within less complex forms of life. There's no philosophy there um, amongst the monkeys and... Uh, and tigers and uh, dogs and cats and so the humans are doing so because they identify consciousness with a thinking mind that um, conceives of or uh, well a, a self self awareness hmm? um, then they the general idea that consciousness is there that's a human phenomena hmm? that it occurs it's, it's, it's they think it's an epiphenomenon of the brain and um, a lot of them. There, there's there's dozens and dozens and dozens of different ways in which people in philosophy of mind or in neuro, neuro, um, what do you call it? Neuro, no neuro, neuroscience um, have you know tried to think about consciousness. But for the most part, my point is they all think of it as the human phenomena. Hmm? So, but not everybody. So panpsychism is the idea that consciousness goes all the way down. Hmm? And so we would agree with that. We feel that consciousness is, is life. Life is not biological. There's something biological going on, but life, uh, there's a biological life, but biological life itself is turned on by consciousness, which is not biological in its makeup. It transcends biology, therefore it, it, it never dies. Hmm? That animating principle, we are of that, made of that stuff. Um, and we find ourselves, of course, the theory is in different species of life, um, and at different stages of awareness of that uh, fact, or, or different degrees of perception of of our um, different that we're different from matter. 
would be the way of talking about it, that we're subjective rather than part of the objective world. Um, so there are some people who posit uh, different forms of panpsychism, and then consciousness goes. They would say something like consciousness goes all the way down. It's found foundational. Still, they may think of it in, in mundane ways. So there's so much complex thought about it, um, and it's it's very like I say, it's very complex, very complicated. And books like the Gita, Bhagavad Gita, they're so simple about it, but they're so profound. But because it's it it says that consciousness is different from matter, that has huge implications. Hmm? I mean, ultimately, it means the material world only matters because of because of us, and 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 that life endures, you know, beyond the biological death, and so on and so forth. And there's gods and whatever. There's God, and and there's a supernatural. I mean, it's like the world isn't running on that kind of fuel. Hmm? That's not how, you know, the educational institutions are, you know, the premises that they're based on and the and the whole lifestyle and, and, the, and the pursuit of things, you know, which is what, you know, you, you, you know, science in its pure state is for knowing. You want to get to the truth. You want to know. But then you put what facts you gather and you put it in the hand of technology. And if you have a concept of life with, that says that you're the body, then when you're just going to use the technology, um, scientific information with the technology to create better ways for the body to be happy hmm? and ultimately to try to stop it from dying and so on and so forth, to do, to do the things that the, the consciousness is said to do unto itself. It doesn't die, so you want to make the body not die, but it's, it's you that doesn't die. And so, of course, you know these things, but, um, but that idea... Is, is of the Gita is, is resisted because it, it it just turns tables upside down hmm? radically um, in a in a good way we would say and so forth but um, people are materially absorbed hmm? and uh, they're attached to things and uh, they have an identity based on that attachment their I is based on their my because it's my country. I think I'm an American. I, I am, but I'm not an American. Hmm? I'm not a man or woman. I am. I have a man's body, but I live in America at the moment, but I bet other lives in other places. And and consciousness is, is, is everywhere in different conditions, different biological um, conditions it finds itself in. And, of course, we posit the theory that, 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 that karma is, is, is the... Is a, that there's a moral kind of unseen law or workings that that determine hmm, where consciousness will find itself in different lifetimes, and so that is kind of a panpsychic idea that conscious that this consciousness makes the tree grow and uh, and life in, in, in the animal world is consciousness. And, of course, we say when consciousness arrives in the human form of life, suddenly it starts to feel itself, to think about itself. It's no longer just driven by animal necessities. It's driven by the necessity of itself. Hmm? The machine, the human machine, the body, is, 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 is more complex and it's suited more, arguably, for consciousness to come out and explore itself. And that's what we're supposed to do, according to the Gita, with our human life. 
but without good guidance, when, it's, when at, the Atma, the consciousness, the soul, comes to the fore in human life, it starts to feel itself, that it's more, and then that there is more meaning, and so it starts to look for the meaning in matter and stretch matter in different ways and try to get, get the more and, uh, and gets more frustrated. Hmm? And um, just exercises the mind and intelligence and it to, to, to the point it becomes circular and then they start even questioning if they exist and, uh, you know, uh, and, and who's questioning? <laughs> who's questioning that I exist? Yeah. To say, which brings up a point, to say that that consciousness is not causal and foundational. Hmm? You just, like you can't. It's to say like I don't exist. You can't say that. I mean, you can say it, but it doesn't have any meaning. I don't exist. You understand? I mean, it has no meaning. You you can't get away from the I that's making the statement. Hmm? You can. So. We don't try to. Hmm. We don't try to get away from ourselves. We try to find ourselves. Hmm. And we look by means other than um, those that are uh, material and suitable for sampling the material world. But we think, I've sampled the material world as a bird. I've flown in the sky. I've swum in the ocean. I've mooed as a cow. I've growled as a tiger. I've been through so many species of life. Hmm. Now I have a human form of life. And the difference is we can talk about these things. Because if this isn't the difference, then what is? Then there is no difference. Like Prabhupada used to say, animal, dog is running on four legs and barking. Man is riding on four wheels and blowing the horn. What is the difference? Hmm? It used to be in the 50s they'd you know, drive and blow the horn. Hey, baby. You know, <laughs> over here. Dog is running, chasing his mate, and barking. Guy's driving on four wheels. Where's the progress? So you've got a car. It's better than walking or running like a dog, but what are you using it for? Same purpose. So you haven't really got... It's an illusion that you've gotten somewhere. You've gone somewhere. You've changed. You, you've progressed. And Prabhupada was speaking about that this morning in the piece that we wrote, that, that we read, that he, that, he, that he... speech that he delivered in Bombay. Hmm. So these are like really kind of simple points in a way, but they're very profound, and they carry with them huge implications that makes it difficult for for a society that's very invested otherwise to turn to. So they'd rather, you know, we're so invested in a materialistic way of life, and, and we found things from science also that disprove many suspicions of the past and ideas and and so forth, uh, and so let's retire this soul idea too. Let's retire this idea that consciousness is different from matter. That's just another one of these superstitious, crazy ideas. But it's it's very different than a lot of superstitions that have been retired. There is there's a there's a one fellow that term gave a nice term. He said there's there I forget his name too. Forgive me, but there's he said there are there's soft common sense, and then there's hard common sense. Soft common sense things can be disproved. You, you think it's common sense, but you show later, well, they thought like this because they didn't know it worked like this, and so that was their thinking. But common, but hard common sense is that which everybody has common sense about, like I am, hmm? and my actions 
are informed by my thoughts, my consciousness, and so forth. Things move from up to down. Hmm? And that, those, he argues, well, are not going to be overturned and disproved and so forth. So, so anyway, we agree with the idea of pan panpsychism. You know, in a sense, there's all kind of versions of it and so forth. But that consciousness is is, is everywhere. It is the animating force that um, turns turns the world on, makes it matter. As I often say, it wouldn't matter if we didn't matter about it. Hmm? So what are we? What am I? I again is the la- word that's most used in every language. It's one you can never get away with. Wherever you go. There you are, they say, right? Well, I am wherever I go. It's the one thing you can't get away from. Stop trying. Mm -hmm. And it's the one thing we're most interested in and the one thing we know the least. Mm -hmm. So spiritual life is for knowing. Mm -hmm. And how will you know the I? Not with your mind. Mm -hmm. Not with your intelligence. Not with your senses. All of which are require the eye to animate them and give them any meaning. Hmm? They can't shed light on something that's brighter than themselves. Oh. So we need a different method altogether. Hmm? We need, as we were saying, a trans-rational means for knowing. That's not an irrational means. It's reasonable to conclude that reason has its, its utilization and its limitations. And that conclusive knowing will never be arrived at by it. There's always another reasoning to supplant the previous one. Hmm? And of course, and, 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 and full knowing, co- re- complete knowing, perfect knowing means perf- to be perfectly happy. We know all our actions are informed by some knowledge. What we're pursuing is, is perfect happiness, perfect knowledge. Knowledge which will inform action that will make us perfectly happy. That's what everybody wants. That's what everybody's pursuing. Some people say perfect knowledge doesn't exist, but they don't stop looking for it. We say it exists, so we're more sane than them. (coughs) But we say that the means of arriving at it has to be perfect as well. So to invoke the adage of Sridharmarsh that the finite cannot know the infinite unless the infinite wants the finite to know. Then out of its infinite capacity, it can make it possible. So you're introducing a whole, you know, other idea. And if you can't measure it, this is, you know, and find it, and the argument is why she would believe it. There could be all kinds of things you can't measure and find. Of course, there was a time when you couldn't measure, like, certain waves, I suppose, or ultraviolet light or something like that and you didn't believe in it because you couldn't measure it now you'd believe in it because you could measure it you could say well maybe you'll be able to measure it in the future but we don't say that we say it's immeasurable hmm. why not why can there not be something that's immeasurable hmm. maya the Sanskrit word maya means illusion and it means to measure hmm. so to bring the whole thing within your grip it's, it's not possible. And I often say, how can the ruler measure itself? So that which is the measurer is the self. We do the measuring. Matter doesn't do it. We measure matter, and to one extent or another, we, we understand it. 
that's what I mean by measuring it. We, we, we harness it. We use it for our perceived purposes, for our sense of self and so forth, to some extent. Hmm? But we are the measurer. So now you've got to measure yourself. It's like, well, how, how to do that? Hmm? So these are interesting ideas, and they're very abstract and so forth. They're, they're attractive to us, but they're hard to like put in place because we're so objectively and materially uh, centered and, and uh, absorbed. So you get these kind of ideas in some of these spiritual schools of the Satori, where you just like, you know, suddenly you get hit in a certain way and your whole vision changes and you see it or something like that. That's the kind of idea, I guess, behind the Zen cone. You think about it long enough, and then you stop thinking, and you get a flash or something like that. Of course, we have our own method for for coming to uh, such insights, and arguably in an enduring sense. Yadgatvani vartante tadama paramamla. Going there and not coming back. That is the idea. Thank you. What else? Yes, I'm an honor. Um, if there's no, there's no beginning and there's no end to existing oh, self and to ourselves, then uh, what is the meaning of time? Is time just an illusion? Because there's no beginning, there's no end, and time just kind of, you know, what's the meaning of the passing of time itself? What is it? You know, these are questions that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, time is described uh, in the Bhagavatam and the Gita also. The Gita is like the hand of God and so forth. It's uh, it's described in in the Upanishads uh, with and and Baladev employs it. Baladev Bhushan in his Gita commentary is one of the uh, ingredients of the world hmm, that comes from God. Hmm. A power of God, a power that uh, is is involved in the manifesting of material existence. Um, Bhagavatam has a chapter on, I think, understanding time from the atom, something like that. I haven't studied it at any length. Um, and then there could be some... They don't just posits different type of time. You know, well, there's etern- two, two, there's etern- eternal time, temporal time. Just like we have time in Goloka. It's time to milk the cows. It's time to meet with the gopis. So this is time within eternity. That's functioning in another way. But what is time? That's too big of a question for me to answer around the fireside. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, is that one of these what is not time you know like the Vedanta Tente or the Upanishads Tente tell you what it is and is that the kind of answer no they have some explanation I, not, I haven't I haven't had the time to look it over <laughs> yes I speak about you have spoken in order to touch the heart to suspend the intelligence. So I'm just wondering if you could just speak more about suspending, how to suspend the intelligence of, um, of not the devotee, but 
Mm-hmm. Well, um, I think that what I mean by that is that I give the example that Prabhupada was able to some extent to suspend our intelligence to captivate us, capture our heart, and we did what he said without asking or thinking too deeply. Why? Hmm? It didn't take long to get into that space. We did some thinking for a little bit, and then and there, there you were, ready to go. And um, in that sense, when I speak to an audience, people are listening with their intellect and they're, you know, analyzing whether they agree with that or not. And by that I mean they're kind of like, okay, I agree with that, so they let that go in. Hmm? I'm not sure about that. So the intellect is kind of protecting the heart, so to speak, or people are proceeding with with caution. An intellect-ruled life would be a proceed-with-caution type of life. Let's say, I'll give the example sometimes, let's say you go to a foreign country, you go out shopping for food, you go in the store, you look, and you want to read what's in it. So you're not just going to grab anything off the shelf and eat it. You want to the what are the ingredients. And When you're at home, it's another thing. Hmm? Your, your roommate, your family members... <coughs> Cook something for you. Say dinner's right there. You know, you know, you just um, go and eat, right? You're not proceeding with caution. You're at home. Mm-hmm. So at home, your your function, your your doubting function, as intelligence is thought to be sometimes, is less operative. Mm-hmm. If it is operative. It's operative in a way that serves the heart. That's why I said Puja Pashidamar sometimes used the term brain-dead bhakti to describe Vrindavan. Their brains are dead. They're not thinking. Other than to... The brain is completely following the heart. Hmm? What I've described previously is the brain is leading the heart, protecting the heart, Hmm? moving with caution. So when you can get beyond that, so to speak, capture the heart, then intellect starts to move in a different way and, and the head starts to serve the heart, work in a way to soften the heart even. Hmm? I often say use your head to soften your heart. The head should be the guide in a sense, but only to a point. Hmm? So in, in, in sadhana bhakti, well, you know, you, you go through different stages where the, where the head is more more involved and then it starts to retire and the heart comes out and in as, in ruchi and asakti and, and bhava bhakti so forth. That's kind of what I'm talking about when I when I say that. And, and I see, when I speak with a group of people sometimes, I really, you know, I can perceive they're, they're listening, some are weighing the points and trying to get them and something, but I'm not sure if I'm letting that in. And Sometimes I can get to a point where everybody's just not thinking anymore, hmm? and everything's going in, and and so that's what I mean by suspending the intellect 
so that that heart can come out. Um, but as I say also, there's a place for using the intellect wisely where the heart becomes the guide and the intellect becomes the assistant. Instead of the, instead of the intellect being the guide and the heart is like, I guess, in the background being protected or something like that. And, um, so I use the example in, as I have tonight. At home, you know, you, you, your mother says, come and eat, you know, here. So you just go, you know, you're not, there's affection. Golok, Vrindavanis, this is like the home, homeland, of, it's the heartland. So everybody there is, there's no, there's no doubting, there's no question. They don't use intelligence not to doubt. So it's free movement. It's not slowing them down. Like Sridhar said, suspicion leads to suspension. So doubting, obviously it causes us to go, well, I'm not going to go forward here. I'm going to doubt. Let me clear the way. So when the heart is leading in the homeland, if you will, then intelligence takes second place and it, it functions by way of determining the best way to serve, for example, Krishna in any given instance, hmm? rather than whether there is Krishna or not, or whether there's a soul or not, and, and so on and so forth. So that's the way I use that. And, and um, your question is maybe not entirely based on how I use, use the term, but um, I think that I would say in the modern world that if you want to talk to educated people, you got to give a pretty big meal to the intellect. Intellect has an appetite. And, you know, different people have different sizes of intellect, so different appetites, and and it depends on the person, the audience you want to speak to, how much you have to have exercised intellect to be able to satisfy their intellect. What you're talking about is even reasonable. And they start to feel comfortable with that, and and maybe you can, you know, progress, so to speak, and and uh, enter in and get, leave some points with them that are um, going to stay with them to, to ponder and so forth and ask back about further. So you have to assess your your audience, and if you want to get the, as we said the other day, if you want to get the broadest audience, you got to go to the most intelligent people or the fewest people. If you want the broadest audience, you go to the, the, the smallest number of people who are the most intelligent, hmm? whose thought inadvertently the, the masses of people are going to follow. Hmm? They do the thinking, and then it filters down in different ways, and, and uh, those currents of thoughts become trends and, and un, un, unreasoned beliefs of people. That's why I said, if you want to capture the masses, it's not a question of convincing the masses of every of your of every point that you need to make. You just need to get the microphone because <laughs> they just follow. Hmm? So people do follow knowingly or unknowingly trends of thought that are coming from kind of an intellectual bank, and then the press gets a hold of it, you know, and writes about it to one extent or another, and they want to be have intellectual integrity, so they. And interview the intellectuals and and so on, and it, and it filters down. So, yes. Uh, right to the subject you're talking about, there, uh, from our view, there already exists a, a long tradition of philosophy and, and, and 
a dispute currently between these very intelligent people talking about who gets, you know, um, hired to uh, Princeton and, and, and serve there. For, uh, one uh, example would be Kurt Doodle, who is uh, Einstein. Yeah. Scott Einstein said that the reason he came to Princeton was so he could take off from Doodle. Now, uh, Doodle uh, came up with, Doodle was an application that came right. up with stuff that probably didn't want to get into, but, but uh, Recently, I should interject for a moment, if I may, recently an article came out that based on Goodall's theorem, someone has proved the existence of God. Have you read that? Yeah. But one thing that Doodle uh, said in an unpublished uh, lecture is that he thinks that, there's, that there is a centuries-old conspiracy to uh, trade uh, mankind on the basis of philosophy. And, uh, and, the, uh, and this, uh, <coughs> this uh, dispute between this, so what's called the good guys and the bad guys has been going on since the time of Plato. And the Platonists are, I would just uh, to make one story fair, I'd say the Platonists are my friends. And uh, there are a lot on the other side. And if you read, if you, you know, spend enough time online reading about all these guys, you kind of sort them out. <laughs> who's uh, who's in charge of the conspiracy, <laughs> or, or are there just there's two sides you're saying of of thought? It's, uh, I don't know. I don't really think it's uh, anyone. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, headed Illuminati or anything like that. <laughs> Hope not. Yeah. Also, one other item. Uh, <clears throat> there's a book called The Shovel Brain. I don't know if anybody's read it. Written by a biologist who tried to you know, localize consciousness in flatworms by by the learning uh, learning process. And he subjected these flatworms to a lot of different experiments, cut them up, and reassembled them, and so forth. And he couldn't find an area in the flatworm that was really responsible for the process of seeding the entire. Hmm. Hmm. Just to say that flatworms had consciousness at all would be. Uh, Questionable in some circles, but 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 some educated people do um, hold such theories, and I guess we would agree with them. Yeah, so just there's just too much thought out there. I think we should keep it simple, chant and be happy in one sense. But but sometimes, again, if you want to speak to the world, and you if you wanted to attract the most people, and this was Prabhupada's uh, strategy to try to speak to educated people. That's why he encouraged some of his students who had degrees who were in the process of getting them to get them and work in those fields and so on and so forth. So there's a place for that. Um, and there's also just a place for speaking about the traditions such that the devotees in general will feel confident that what they're doing is reasonable um, given just like Avatar, you know, he's here and he's having the thoughts that resonate with a lot of the core um, ideas that we, we, we're living for, and he feels like a fish out of water. I mean, it's like he's doesn't fit, so to speak. Um, and so you kind of need some reasoning as to why you fit and why, you know, it's the world is the problem and not you. Hmm? Because people who are too absorbed in the world, they'll think you're the problem, and um, you know that that can be um, 
very problematic. So his father immediately brought him to the hospital here, you know, at an emergency. He had his own experience in his youth where, you know, he had existential crisis and took shelter of an ashram. And it was very admirable, I thought. He, he was so... He thought this is the solution. His mother wanted to put him in in, in, a, in a hospital or something. No, take him to an ashram. You're going to get you know people that you know talk the same language and have the same feelings and so forth and have good reasoning to support it. And there's nothing wrong with him. I wish I was more like that. And I had pursued you know he kind of indicated that the path of that that he had uh, he had spent time in New Mexico in a Sikh ashram in his youth. And I've been to that ashram too. So you need some reasoning hmm, to support your faith so that your intelligence or the intelligence of others that may bear down upon you, intimidate you, doesn't uh, derail you, so to speak. Um, that's what our books are for, and uh, that's why the shraddha, the faith, will be firmed by such... Um, study of the scripture under good guidance where we can understand it in a dynamic way and so forth. And so it's also an exercise for oneself in one sense. And we may not be familiar with some theories and whatnot. Sound like groomers talking about people who we do care about or know about or whatnot, but the, they're out there and you'll, you'll encounter them or you'll meet people that do encounter them. And if you want to share with them, you may find you've got old examples that just don't work anymore, you know, that don't have the same currency that they did for you, you know, and they may be, you know, right out of the scriptures and so forth, so you got to take them and, like I'd like that one, you know, Prakriti Kriyamanani Gunaikamani Sarvasa, you would think you're doing things that are actually done by the brain, hmm? that's a, would be a modern translation, actually done by the modes of nature, and you're the witness, then you want to separate out, it doesn't mean that you're not there, doesn't mean that you're not a doer, but it does mean that there are things that are going on that, that, that you're not the doer of, that you've identified with, and that's, you know, part of the problem. And that's a way in which we can agree with so many uh, atheistic people in, in, the, in the, for example, in the scientific community. But then we don't stop there, of course. So anyway, it's all this, uh, it's not the sweetest topic, but... <laughs> It has its place, yeah. Can you explain a little bit more? Um, you use the term the brain and the three modes of material nature. Yeah. Well, what I mean by the, the brain is part of the body, right? The body is constituted of the modes of nature, right? The consciousness is different. It's not constituted of, the, it's not matter, it's not constituted of the modes of nature. So the brain has all these, you know, whatever, neurons that fire and things happen and so forth. And, and and um, and what they do in neuroscience is they, they, they see this correlation between thought and brain. Hmm? A person has a thought and there's a corresponding area in the brain that lights up when he has it, or a perception or a feeling, and this lights up and that lights up. And so they, they have this mapping, right, that sophisticated mapping that they do, and they, so they conclude there's really no mind, it's really all the brain. We see this, see, this is the brain. This is, see, for us... That's a foregone conclusion, that there's a correspondence between, for example, thought, which we relegate to mind, and subtle matter, and brain, which is physical. That's a given for us. Hmm? You understand? 
the brain's like a glove on the you know on, on the mind and the body's you know um, corresponding with the in a sense the consciousness of the jiva it's 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 uh, it's absorption and so on and so forth so it's a given that there will be this very sophisticated correspondence between brain and um, and consciousness but as it's often said correlation is not what's the term Nita? causation hmm? So because there's a correlation between thought and the brain, which might lead you to believe there's no really mind, it's just a brain, because you can't find the thought, so to speak. But correlation doesn't mean causation. So because there's a correlation between mind and brain, doesn't mean brain causes mind. And when they say mind, they think they're meaning consciousness. We're meaning subtle matter, but then beyond that is consciousness, and the same holds. Consciousness is not brain. So the brain is doing things. Hmm? And um, it's a machine. Krishna says in the Gita that the soul is riding on this machine made of material nature. It's a very sophisticated machine, and machines do things. Computers do things. They compute. They, you know, they can talk. They do all kinds of stuff. Hmm? So as the Gita says, we think that we are doing things that are in fact done by the modes of nature. We're the witness. We're making it happen by our witnessing, so to speak, by the presence of consciousness. The machine gets turned on, and then the machine's going, and you identify with the machine. Hmm? Gita says, no, that, that's the modes of nature. You just step back and, and, uh, and know yourself, know thyself. Hmm? So I say the brain. I'm saying the, the modes of nature are doing and then what we say, but the Gita also teaches that you're not the brain. There are many things that the brain are doing that you think you're doing. But if you would read all the things that the brain does, you'd think, wow, I'm different. I'm a lot different than I thought I was. That's, uh, that's part of the machine. And I'm, I'm different than the machine. I turned the machine on, but I'm not the machine. And it might start to feel like, sound like you're less. Hmm? You're not this, you're not doing that. But then, of course, you are the more, hmm? as much as the the the, 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 the the you're required to turn the machine on and the machine has a duration and and, and, and you don't and so forth. So again, uh, that I am this or that is not true, but that I am, that's true, and that's huge. Huge. What's your name? Oh, Alexis, you, you look a little different. Your picture is a little younger, maybe. <laughs> Welcome. Is your mother here, too? Yes. Where is she? Welcome. Thank you for coming from so far, all the way from Florida. Huh? Must have been about an eight-hour ride or something. Ten hours. Ten hours? Uh-huh. Well, nice that you, you arrived. You just got here recently, then. See, it was late this afternoon. Do you have accommodations? Okay, good. Good. So, what else? Yes. Um, is there any point where um, eventually all souls will become Krishna conscious and are reason to the world? The idea is that... Um, there are infinite 
number of souls. That means there's no number. It's uh, so. Let's put it like this: there'll always be a material world. There'll always be an opportunity for the Godhead to exercise compassion. And that, I know, does not fit between the ears very well. But it's good to know that there are, that everything is not contained in, in the brain or in, in your capacity to reason. So again, there's, there, are, there are the immeasurable factors. And, uh, and so, no. Um, that question is raised by Sanatana Goswami somewhere and he's, uh, uh, that, um, and uh, he answers it along those lines hmm. but this is that is beyond the realm of thinking hmm. we just follow what the revealed texts say on it we, we, we acknowledge that there are things that are not part of the domain of human reasoning and we think that's good. Because as I was saying earlier, to proceed by reasoning alone is to lead a very um, proceed with caution type of life. It's not a happy life. It's a, it's a doubting life, a questioning life, where you're, you know, to some extent you're suspended and you go forward and you're suspended. You want a life where hmm, the heart can be happy and, and there's, no, there's no concern there's, there's nothing to. Um, there's no. There's no ca- caution is not required. What kind of company will that require? Hmm. Um, and so to get there, we you know we have to. We have to use our intelligence. But we have to put it in its place. Also, it has its, its limitations. And so there are some questions we ask. We try to want to arrest it and answer it, and it's just beyond answering, and that's good. Hmm. It, it it shows. The limits of of, of, of of reason, and that's a valid and a reasonable proposal. That the, the reason has its limitation. Hmm? We think that it's wise to reason about revelation and significance and the implications of it, and so forth, hmm? as far as is possible. That is a good use of intellect. In that case, intellect becomes a, an assistant of faith. Nowadays, it's thought that. Faith is, a, is, a, is the absence of reason. Hmm? If you don't have reason, then you, you call it faith or something like that, and it's stupid. That's how people sometimes think of it. But we would say, that, no, that, that faith is, is the very animating principle of life. If you have faith in something, then you can go forward. Shraddha ayam purusha, the Gita says the person is his faith, her faith. So... And there's different types of faith, of course, but here we're talking about divine faith. Hmm? And reason will be beautiful and know its place as an assistant of faith. Because you can understand, I mean, practically speaking, reason is kind of fence-sitting type of a position. You cannot apprehend something entirely um, by 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 the intellect. Let's take a, for example, you want to understand an apple with your intellect. Okay. You can analyze every, you know, physical characteristic and aspect of an apple and arguably you know nothing about it. 
right? Until you've tasted it. And and can you explain the taste? I tasted the apple. It's, you know, sweet. It's kind of like, you know, you, you have to taste it. And, and you understand. And who's understood it more? Someone hasn't thought about it at all but tasted it or someone has thought about it forever. So the tasting implies some action. Hmm? So when we speak of faith, it's it's I speak it as speak it of as an animating principle. I mean, it's going forward. Therefore, Shidomar said, as someone cited earlier, suspicion leads to suspension. If we doubt, we're suspended. Understandably, hmm? when the doubt is cleared, we can go forward. Hmm? So, by intellect, we can clear doubts, maybe to some extent, enough to go forward. But by the experience that we get in going forward, then we're really driven if we've, you know, if we've gone on the right direction. We've tasted something that's worth tasting. So, so the idea of faith, I think, in, is, is more of a, like I say, an animating principle, an active principle in, in life. And, and, and arguably, when I, the way I'm speaking about it, is the, is the vehicle for comprehensive knowing. Hmm? Knowing that which which reason does not have access to. Let's take the self. If we say there's an atma, a soul, consciousness, and it's not um, reducible to matter, it's independent of matter, it's independent of time and space, it always has been and always will be, hmm? then, obviously, then, mind, intellect, sensual perception, and so forth, this is all part of matter and time and space, so it's inferior. So how can it shed light on something that's, if theoretically there's something that's independent of matter, then that which is matter, whether it be a subtle form or a gross form, is not going to be able to um, shed light on it or it's not going to subject itself. It doesn't. It's not going to show up, the soul, in the court of reasoning. Uh, you know, if the reason decides to have a court, whether there's a soul, you know, it's, it's, it's a no-show. I'm not going to bother to go. Hmm. Um, it's uh, the very theory, if you will, of consciousness being independent of matter um, says that, uh, that that reason has its limitation and it's not the vehicle for understanding the self. There's another vehicle. So we engage in transrational activities, which is a reasonable thing to do. Hmm? And they are said to give us access to ourself and possibilities that lie beyond intellect. That we want an answer with our intellect, and when we say there's no answer that will satisfy your intellect to that, but I want an answer. What we're saying is, you know, control your intellect. <laughs> it's out of control. It wants to consume the whole thing, and it doesn't have the stomach to digest it. Hmm? It's got a big appetite, but it cannot digest it. There's something bigger than that. Hmm? And again, the, the sutras say that tarko, pratishtana, reason and argumentation never arrives, will never allow you to arrive at conclusive truth as to the whole picture. You may arrive to a conclusive truth about something, maybe, but then again, you could reason about it further, perhaps, and look at it another way, and so on and so forth. So, um, so faith, and faith in what? Faith in revelation. It's not a. It's not a very. It's not a. It's not a naive idea. 
faith in the idea that reality is bigger than myself and bigger than my brain. Hmm? And if it wants me to know it, then on its terms I will know it hmm? by its power and not my own limited power. Hmm? I'm not in control. So this is a re reasonable idea. Hmm? Much of the modern mind wants to, you know, conquer everything, understand it, conquer it, and master the world, and so forth and so on. We have a different approach, and arguably that affords a kind of knowing that cannot be arrived at by the other method. Hmm? Yes, Sumati. Maybe it's too personal, but I was wondering if you could talk about your own, maybe some faith building experiences you've had in relationship to Well, my, my faith comes from, from the experience that I derive from my, from my practice that corresponds with what's been said in the text and that the sadhus have talked about. So I know I'm on... I'm validating the theory by practice, and that's what you have to do. You have to validate the theory. It's a theory. It's reasonable. It's caught your intelligence. You think it's a reasonable proposal. Now you have to apply yourself if you want to call yourself a reasonable person, hmm? right, to those practices and in such a way that they afford you the experience that won't allow you to turn back, so to speak. And you've had some experience. That's why you haven't turned back after all these years. It's not consistent. Hmm? And so your practice may be up and down, and so forth, but now it's getting more steady. And you're, uh, and maybe there has been times in the past as well, of course, when it was. And 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 steady and more it's steady the more you get experience the more you get experience the more it's steady, hmm? and the more it is so and committed and so forth then again the more the experience and then therefore experience is the ultimate pramana, the ultimate evidence. We say that revelation is is evidence that supersedes evidence that we can gather about from the senses or reasoning which are limited and imperfect. Hmm? as far as complete knowledge. And by complete knowledge, it doesn't mean, you know, if I have complete knowledge, it doesn't mean I know how to build a jet engine. It means I'm completely satisfied. <laughs> and and there's, there's, there's evidence for what complete satisfaction means. My satisfaction is not dependent upon anything, hmm? any circumstance, and it's enduring, and so on and so forth. So when we say that, that the... the a person is all-knowing, hmm? enlightened. It, 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 it doesn't mean that they they're burdened by knowing everything in in detail, but they know essentially what uh, what is the meaning of life. Let's say, if you if you know that what the world is about, then you know that all manifestations of it are illusory, temporary, here today and gone tomorrow, and in the pursuit of enduring happiness. Uh, I won't find it in relation to those things. You know everything now, hmm. <laughs> uh, but now you know how to. You need to know all you need to know how to pursue um, uh, that ideal hmm, in a in a way that's other than in relation to things that aren't enduring. So we give you enduring ideas hmm, um, to um, uh, focus your attention on and spiritual practices and so forth and and so this comes from the sacred texts and, and it taught by the teachers and so forth and the teachers are embody the teachings and, and have experienced them and we can kind of sense that and so forth it's contagious so we feel 
in, encouraged, enthused in that kind of company. And then the idea is you have to practice. And as you get experience, this is the most confirming thing. So while we say that revelation is a means of knowing that that is superior to that which we can um, arrive at by senses and reasoning alone, hmm? um, we go further to say that the ultimate evidence hmm, is the experience derived from pursuing the um, the um, spiritual practices and so forth uh, uh, um, advocated in in the, in the sacred texts, and that's our experience. I mean, it is our experience that our experiences get a little experience, and it's very different. Hmm? We've satisfied our tongue, we've satisfied our ear, we've satisfied our eyes and our tactile sense in so many ways. Arguably, we've done it as a fish, as a bird, as a tiger, as a as a lamb, as a tree, uh, doing it as a human being. And all the six, all the five senses are active and our working senses of hands and legs and motor senses of what we've, we've experienced the world through them. And in serious spiritual practice, we have experience with something that's that, well, we call it ecstatic. It means beyond the senses. Do we have a dictionary here? Look up ecstasy. It's beyond the senses. Now we pleasure ourselves through our senses, right? We touch, we taste, we smell. We relay experiences to the mind, and the mind says, I like this, I don't like that, and we form a whole world of our mind and an identity that I like this, I don't like that, this is hot, this is cold, this is good, this is bad, this is me. Hmm? I am, you know, the person who thinks that's cold, who thinks that's hot, who likes this, who doesn't like that. That's how that I is defined. All that is a total illusion because what's hot for you may be cold for me and and that may change too. Hmm? Um, so that I is a very, uh, is not something to, 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 to depend on. But, but, we're identified in that way, and that's how we're getting the pleasure. Now, through spiritual practices, we get an experience that is wholly different. It's, it's, it's as if I could take all of my senses together and all of the sense experiences of everyone else and put it in a big syringe and inject it in myself. Hmm? And it wouldn't measure up to the taste I got from chanting Hare Krishna. Hmm? Right? And, and that's why we keep chanting Hare Krishna, even though the taste may not be consistent. Hmm? And we know why it's not, and because we are distracted and the mind is not fully mastered and so on and so forth. But we have confidence that it's worth mastering as possible. And and, uh, and so we... What is the definition? I'm just trying to get it to good. Uh-huh. I think it means literally like beyond the senses. So, so this is... You know, and this is how the whole of School of Vedanta really comes. It all comes out of experience. If you really look at how the Upanishads were written, you see they're all written on the basis of experience. They're experiencing the world in a particular way and then writing about it from that perspective. That's a very interesting point. Hmm? So it means, it says, a trance or trance-like state in which a person transcends normal consciousness. Okay. That's pretty good. term used to mean outside itself. Outside itself. Outside the material sense of self. Right. Senses. Hmm? So, 
so yeah, the, the whole the whole of those those sacred texts they're 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 written on the basis of experience. Hmm? It's an exper- particular experience of the world, and then they're trying to talk about it. Hmm? And it's hard to talk about because the experience transcends the the talk, it transcends language, and thought. And so it looks like a jungle of sounds, and what is this? And so you you need someone to like put it together and help to help you to understand it and that's what we call theology hmm? and and reasoning about the revelation yes I had one more question. yeah you were um and perhaps you finished the story and i didn't catch the end about the meters. um this morning you were telling a story about you wanted to go in the kitchen and watch probably cook yeah oh yeah and to, yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. What I was bringing that point up. Uh, thank you for reminding me. The reason I was bringing that story up is because I was explaining the point that Prabhupada wanted his disciples to. He he encouraged individual expression based on the the singular philosophy, one philosophy which would give rise to within the parameters of the philosophy different nuanced experiences, hmm? like. Dasyarasa, Sakyarasa, Vatsalyarasa, for example, on a high level, or on how to organize a temple and uh, share with other people and so on and so forth. So he wanted his temples to be um, run by devotees who were independently thoughtful and um, that, that, that that would be a place where they could express their spirituality, their Krishna consciousness. And the variety that would arise from that would would be the like a, a decoration of this of the singular philosophy out of which it was arising. And so, when I went to see Prabhupada and asked him, you know, I heard you were going to cook, and so he said, no, he said, I mean, I, he was speaking as he did. And as I explained, and then uh, Gopal Vrindapal came in, and he, and he he thought that I had come to talk to Prabhupada about about book distribution because he was a book distributor, and I was so Prabhupada uh, acknowledged him, and then he said that Prabhupada, I wanted to. My experience is that devotees they speak about the philosophy and try to distribute your books, and sometimes they don't speak about it in ways that are the best ways. And so, I would like to set up a system that everybody you know has certain things to say, and they can't you know say other things, and and so on and so forth. Um, and he wanted to like kind of monitor that. And Prabhupada was against it. He said, "No, no, no, we cannot do that." He said. Every devotee has their own inspiration, just like he said, just like Tripurayamarsha. Krishna within his heart is giving him so many things to say. Hmm? And then he would, he said, what is one of those things? Because you know, I, I used to say things and Prabhupada would hear him, and he would ask, what is that boy's name again? Tripurarius. What is he saying now? <laughs> and he would, and then the devotees would say, "He's saying probably, you know, there's an end. There is. You heard about the energy crisis? There is none here. You know, take this book. You know, it's a, say, here's the source of energy. And I had little lines like that, you know, by which I would be a hook, you know, to sell a book, so to speak. And Prabhupada found it very humorous, and uh, and uh, and and he thought this was, you know, he says this is coming from Krishna. So he has each devotee has to. You have to, even if someone will make a mistake, he said we've got to allow room for that." Individual expression. Then they may be corrected, but to, to, but to but to make a system whereby they can't even make the mistake and they can't and they could not do something 
add something more that might come out. You understand? He wanted maybe something new and insightful way of speaking about it or whatnot would, would come out, and we, we would restrict that by, by this kind of system that you're suggesting, which is to correct one problem, but you'll create a bigger problem. Hmm? And we can create the problem, that we can rectify the problem that you're concerned about, basically is what he was telling him, by, if say say it wrong, we can say that's wrong. You should say it like you know this is you didn't you know you go the wrong philosophy here or something like that. Let a person be corrected by making mistakes hmm? was better his idea. Let them make mistakes and be corrected rather than trying to like harness everybody in and you can only say it like this and and then uh, and he said it is artificial. Hmm? And so he very much wanted the a, a, a to facilitate individual expression. He wanted the expression to arise out of the philosophy and not be outside of the parameters of what the philosophy is. So you needed to learn the philosophy. Hmm? But if there was an error, he thought, in this instance, he was, that'd, be, that'd be better than making a system that didn't allow for that uh, type of expression. And so, uh, and then, just to conclude the whole story, then <laughs> Gopavrindic Paul said to Prabhupada, he said, but Prabhupada, you know, you gave the devotees certain like quotas of how much they could collect, should collect every day, hmm? for you know, for selling books and you know, bringing money to the mission and so forth. And so you you regulated that, you know, in such a way. I'm just saying we should regulate. And he was trying to, you know, use an example of one way in which Prabhupada regulated things. He thought, and that couldn't we, you know, do it, you know, with regard to what they say to some some extent too, and. And Prabhupada said, I did not do that. That is Tamal Krishna's idea. He said, that is not my idea. So, and that wasn't his idea at all. His idea was, was Bhakti Siddhanta Sarasthi Thakur's idea. Bhakti Siddhanta Sarasthi Thakur used to send his brahmacharis out to like the Horror Station in Calcutta, the train station. And they'd have this daily magazine called the Gaudiya Prakash, or Nadia Prakash, the light of Nadia. Hmm. They'd stand there in the train station, Nadia Prakash, Nadia Prakash. Not like someone would say, get the Times, get the Times, get the Tribune right here, get the Tribune right here, get the Tribune right here. They would be like, Nadia Prakash, Nadia Prakash, Nadia And if one boy would sell one magazine for one paisa, you know, which is like, you know, a fraction of a rupee, hmm? Tarsity Thakur would be so pleased with him. Or if they made the effort, and that was Prabhupada's. Too. He was never like, he liked to hear the results, but he wasn't as kind of result-oriented at the same time. His result was he wanted the effort and the sincerity and and uh, and, and to love Krishna, basically. Hmm? That was what was most important to him. Hmm. I read a letter yesterday that Prabhupada wrote to Tejas. Mm. In 72, he had heard that Tejas was very disturbed in his mind because he was feeling so much pressure to make so many life members. And Prabhupada said, I want you to be happy to even one person in a day. That's fine. We're not after numbers. And uh -huh. yeah. There you go. Mm -hmm. What was the question in Atlanta? Yeah, that was kind of my mind. Yeah, when Prabhupada was in Atlanta, and there was a lot of devotees there. Balabi, she might remember this, but she's not here with us tonight. Yeah, she's, she's here. I, I remember. You remember, yeah. yeah. It was Atendri is his name, and he said, you know, he's one of the book distributors, so he said, Prabhupada, 
yes, and probably was taking questions, which was very rare. I mean, he was so ecstatic there. He had just gone through Central America, where he had never been, and there were temples and Gornitidides everywhere. And he was just, like, overwhelmed by that. And he came then from, like, Mexico. He must have gone to maybe Panama or Guatemala. I don't know where there were temples. Costa Rica. Hmm? Venezuela. Venezuela. And then, and then to Miami. Then there was uh, Gornitidides there. And then to, to Atlanta. And by the time he arrived there, he was really very much overwhelmed with the, I mean, he, again, he had been to these, never been to these cities, and some of them were in, his, in another language besides English, which wasn't his first language, but he, you know, he wrote in and so forth. And there, there were devotees, and they greeted him, and there were Gornitidides, and he was just overwhelmed by, by the, with the mercy of Gore and Nitai and so forth, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. So when he got to Atlanta, he was, he was, he was overwhelmed, and it was a beautiful temple. Balavantapu and Balavide did a, just a super job. That was the best temple in North America, I thought. And I went to all of them, and I served all the deities in all of North, North America. Um, and, um, and it was a, just a very nice mood there, and it was a good philosophy and well-organized and, and very um, caring. The, the leadership was very caring, um, I felt. So anyway, Prabhupada seemed to feel it too that was my impression and uh, and it just happened to be such that um that all of these traveling buses and vans that were going everywhere and selling prophets books they all converged in atlanta to you know spend a few days with Prabhupada. and so it was packed out and uh, and Prabhupada was giving class from chaitanya charitamrita in the evening and he he usually didn't give class from chaitanya charitamrita as, as you know in the early days in new york he did but then he stopped that, but he was speaking from the seed verses, I believe, of of the Adi Lila, the the, the um, Mongol verses of Chaitanya Charitamrita. And when he fin- when he finished, he would a- he asked for questions. He um, he hadn't done that since the early days in New York. He would ask for questions. That questions were so bad. I guess that's why he stopped. You know, but he wanted to. You know, he finished the class, but he wanted to go on. I mean, he was really quite animated. And there he was sitting, you know, in Gornatai in front of him and uh, all these devotees. I mean, probably was overwhelmed by what was happening. And he didn't think he was doing it, you know. He really didn't. And we thought he was doing everything, of course. And he just felt this is, you know, I, I don't know how I'm in the middle of this <laughs> and how this is all, you know, come about. Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is just exactly what, you know, the, the, the sadhus uh, precede me say he is. And that was his direct experience. Hmm. Um so, uh, at any rate, that's where he introduced the song Paramakarna, Paramakarna, Pahundvijanitai Gorchanda. It's a song of Lochandas Thakur. We hadn't sung it before. We didn't know it. We didn't know how to do the beat either. Hmm? <laughs> Prabhupada asked somebody to play, and they tried to play, and then Prabhupada said, Give me the Murganga. I mean, that he, we were just like, you know, that, you know, just for Prabhupada to do anything like that, to play the Murganga, you know, before everybody and lead the chanting, though, it's just. Incredible for us. There he played. I was sitting next to Tamal Krishnamar. He said, "That sounds like that must be like what the gopis' footprints sound when they're dancing in the Ratha Yatra, <laughs> the way he's playing on the Murdanga." You know, there in Atlanta, I think they replaced the Jai Radha Manava prayers that the devotees always used to sing before a class because Prabhupada would sing it with Paramakarna Pahundvijana, honoring Prabhupada's. Um, uh, ecstasy, you know, 
were worn a tie. So anyway, he asked for questions. That was like very extraordinary. And one devotee asked a question. And was a book distributor. He said, Prabhupada, what is the thing that will please you the most? And I knew him, and I thought, oh, God, how could he ask that question? You know, He wants Prabhupada to say book distribution, and then he's going to go to Balabant and say, see, you're not sending enough money to the book fund. And you know, some of the book distributors were, were like that. They were quite fanatical. And I mean, I was enthusiastic about the book fund, too, but... I knew, you know, I liked deities. <laughs> I liked temples. <laughs> In fact, I wrote to Prabhupada because I was going to all these temples, always traveling. And when you, in those days, when you'd come to a temple, you know, they would have it all figured out who would be worshiping the deities. Like in Los Angeles, there was a list of, you know, for like weeks, who could offer the Arctic. So if you're some guy that's traveling and you got no chance to, you know, worship the deities. So it became a problem for me because I like to worship the deities and then, you know, go through the whole program and chant my rounds and go out on book distribution, come back and go to the program. You know, that was my, it was pretty simple. So I wrote to Prabhupada about that and asked if I couldn't, you know, what was my predicament? And Prabhupada said, get little Gornitai deities, put them in a chest, travel with them, take them out in the morning, worship them, put in the rest, go out, sell the book, come back. And so I did that. I have those deities and so forth. But, um, what was the point? Anyway, so, so yeah, so I like deities, you know, I like that. I, I could understand, you know, because Prabhupada made a statement was these temples are bases for which we, you know, go out and sell books like, you know, sending out airplanes and dropping spiritual bombs everywhere and so forth. So some of the devotees who are the book distributors, they have this idea like these temples, there's, nothing should be given to the temple, all the money should be spent more books and everything should be minimized and so forth and I wasn't quite, you know, like that. I liked, you know, I had a more balanced, I think, uh, you know, idea about it. So that I heard that question. I was like, oh, God, how could he ask? And I knew Prabhupada was not controlled by this. You know. So Prabhupada, of course, showed it. And he, and he wanted him to say, book distribution, that will please me the most. Then, you know, he would have used that and others would have used that. And there was this kind of intimidation sometimes of the book distributors towards the temples and, and it, it, the temp, you know, poor like Balabant is trying to run the temple. And he needs a pujari, he needs a cook, he needs this and that. And then somebody else is coming in and trying to convert everybody to book distributor. Should be a book distributor. He should be a book distributor. Anyway, <laughs> pretty crazy. But Prabhupada beautifully answered back. He said, "What you know, the question is? What is the best way to please you?" He said, "Just try to love Krishna." <laughs> So it's in line with what, you know, he wrote to Tejas. And I was with, um, I, I remember once in Los Angeles, I had um, I had uh, fallen sick and Prompted was there. In those days, it was the old temple room. This was in um, uh, Watsika, not La Sienica, but in Watsika. And behind the temple room, there was um, a room and if you go through there, there were stairs up to Prabhupada's room. And that was, we used to use it as, if somebody got sick, we'd quarantine them in that room there so that others wouldn't, you know, catch it. It was a sick room. And Prabhupada wasn't there, you know, a lot of the time, so it was fine. Anyway, I was there, and I was going out and selling books, and I was, I got pneumonia. And I was so, you know, worked so hard at the cost of my health and so forth. So I, I couldn't go on there. I was in, I was in the sick room, and... Um, so I'm in the sick room reading the Krishna book, you know, all day long, and 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 reading it and thinking, you know, God, I'm mean, here. I am reading. I should be out, you know, distributing this book. I am reading it, 
And I'm thinking, does that make sense? You know, I do like to read the book, you know. But, you know, there was a kind of that kind of a pressure like that. You know? And um, and in walks Prabhupada, you know. To go through that room, he had to go, to go to his garden where he would sit sometimes in the early early evening. And I think, you know, real quickly the mind works. I think, oh, God, and there's Prabhupada. Here I am sitting here, you know. Instead of selling his books, here I am, sick. Prabhupada didn't think I was sick or he didn't know. He said, what are you doing? And then and, and I'm, I'm thinking, oh, God. What am I doing? You know, I just hold up the book. He said, "Well, oh, how nice. You know, you're reading. How nice. And I was just like, wow, that's a real game. I got to tell that to Ramaswar, you know. <laughs> it's okay. To re- I thought it was okay, you know. <laughs> Indeed, Prabhupada said the first time Ramaswar wrote a letter to Prabhupada telling that this boy, Tripurari, is selling so many books. And so what Prabhupada wrote back to very nice that he's selling so many books. Uh, Tripurari does. Please make sure he's always reading them also. Hmm? But, you know, there was a lot of, push for the for the selling and so forth so that's anyway Prabhupada said oh very nice you're reading and so I'm thinking wow and then he says are you coming to the garden with me I said well it's even better you know <laughs> it's okay to be you know so there you know sure well, went into the garden and so yeah he was a lot different than and sometimes some of us presented him you know to be or or thought him to be and and um, predictably he was very warm and uh, affectionate to uh, all of his students, to all all, all living beings. Hmm? He was extremely um, compassionate, as you know. So, what's the status there with the cooks? Just see, huh? pretty good every night, huh? <laughs> pretty good. I got it. Pretty good every night. Excellent. Oh, I don't know. I'd just like, Guru Maharaj, could I ask you about something about book distribution? Yeah. I was talking to Panchatatva, you know, your friend Panchatatva, and he told me about some of your kind of like van pastimes in the way you're here. So I thought maybe you could talk about that. He said that one of the things that you would do, would you would read Chaitanya Charitamrita, and so intensely that everybody in the van would just be like bursting at the seams when they get out the van. Yeah, was, we were in, we were in ecstasy. And I, I had my program was I have no education, you know, no higher education. I barely got out of high school, and and when it came time for uh, uh, me to travel, which was like Ramaswar's conclusion, you should go and travel other places and and so forth. Um, uh, that was like a 1970, I think winter of 1972 or uh, something like that. So I, I was sent to New York and Chicago and then eventually Australia. Um, but um, when um, when I when I went to India, I think it was 73 to India for the first festival. Karunder, who was the GBC, he had looped which was a huge thing, you know. I was in Australia and I heard Karunder blooped. I thought, wow, that's weird. <laughs> because I was 74, because he was a very prominent person. That was a very powerful experience for me. Because when I joined Prabhupada, hmm, when I when I joined Prabhupada, I, I'm joining, you know. That's a whole, of course, we all got our stories. But um, I joined by way of um, going to having hitchhiked from Florida to California with my um, uh, wife, a pregnant wife, 
and chanting all the way across the countryside, arriving back to see my friends in California. I told them, you know, they said, what are you doing back here? Because I had gone to Jamaica to live in the jungle and meditate. And so I said, well, there's something about this Hare Krishna mantra. I can't get away from that. My my bamboo hut, you know, got wiped out in the rain also uh, down there. And uh, so I'm just following this mantra. And somebody said, oh, they're ha- that's the Krishnas. They're having a festival up in Berkeley, you know, this weekend. And so I said, well, we've got to go. So you know me. I like, you know, I got everybody to go. In the Volkswagen van we go and... One guy's singing, you know, Hare Krishna, you know, George Harrison, you know, all the way up, you know. So we get there, and they had a, a big deity of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, and apple raisin halava was, you know, being handed out. And, and all it was was a chanting. That's all, just chanting. And these devotees, like, could care less about preaching to anybody. They were just, like, chanting and dancing, you know, and that was it. <laughs> and you just wanted, like, how do you get in? You know, how do you... How do you join? This is cool. You know, that's kind of how I thought. So I'm chanting and dancing, and, and I go to the hall of the table, and what was her name? So with a P, I forget, Pandarani or something like that. She Here's her preaching. She shows me a picture of Lord Jagan and says, this is the Supreme Personality of Godhead. I'm going, okay. Whatever, you know. It looks good, you know. It feels good. Do it, you know. So I you know, take the hall of a, you know. And then... Um, uh, you know, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was in this pose like this. You know, it was a big, big, tall, you know, one hand like this, one hand up in the air. And they had all these carnations that were, you know, being thrown at the deity. So I get a carnation off the ground and I think, I'm going to throw it up. And if he catches it in his open hand, then I'll know I'm accepted. Hmm? Ah. Yeah. This was like on my birthday, so uh, the day before Gorpurnim. So, yep. It goes up and he lands right in his hand. So I thought, that's it. I'm, I'm, I'm accepted, you know. And so nobody asked me to join or anything, and I didn't know where to go. And everybody just got in their vans and left. So I got mine, went back, was living in the Santa Cruz Mountains. So I got back there, and then I, then I shaved my head, you know. Guy was living with had this orange sheet, and he used to wear it sometimes when he would see the devotees and go out and chant with them, you know. He was a funny guy. So he said, you need this better than me. You know, here, take this. Uh, there I was wearing an orange sheet, you know, a shaved head. And I, would, and I had the Krishna book. And I would preach from the Krishna book to people, you know, my friends and stuff. <laughs> anyway, then, some, sure enough, some devotees from uh, traveling from Los Angeles came to Santa Cruz. And they heard there's this guy up in the mountains in Santa Cruz. And he's, you know, he's doing what you guys do. So they come up and find me, and they, and they quickly told me, you can't do it like this, you can't do it like that, you shouldn't do it like this. And I said, okay, 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 you know. Anyway, I moved down to Santa Cruz with them where they opened the center. And then a couple months they took me down to meet Prabhupada, and Prabhupada graciously gave me um, initiation. And then my wife was too pregnant in Prabhupada's estimation to go anywhere. And so we had to stay in Los Angeles, which... Grunder liked that idea because I had been going out in Santa Cruz and I had a way of talking to people enthusiastically and selling it back to Godhead magazine and so forth. So, But at any rate, I don't know where we are in all this, but I was at some point I was um, sent out to different places as well. And, uh, and um, when Karunder left, um, then I was in, in Australia and I went to India and Probably then, as I said earlier today, had told me to come every year and uh, preach all year long. So I hatched this idea that I would go and and um, 
And I would go to Chicago, which was an airport where it was legal to sell books, which other airports it was illegal. I'd make a base there, and I could train devotees who would come from different temples for a while and stay with me. And so I didn't know really how to do anything very much, and practically I never had a job um, <laughs> up to this point. And so I had no, like, real practical experience. I was just, like, waiting for Prabhupada to come on, and, you know, my life started. You know, that's kind of what I was was like. Um, you know, I was interested in Eastern philosophy and trying to read, and I would ask people how to meditate, and they would give me these vague answers that weren't satisfactory. So at any rate, there I was. And so my program was, this is the point I want to make, was, was we're going to do this by... We're going to be successful by being Krishna conscious. That's how we're going to do this. So we're going to go to all the artiques, and except you know the ones that happen when we're out selling books, and then, and then we're, when in our off time we're going to read the books. So that's all we did. It, we would get up at three in the morning, and we would channel our rounds before Mangal Artik, and then we'd go to Mangal Artik, and maybe do deity worship and Tulsi Puja, and then go to the class, eat prasad, and go out and sell books. And on the way out, we would read the Chaitanya Charitamrita. At lunch, we'd stop, we'd read the Chaitanya Charitamrita, the Bhagavad On the way back, we'd read it. And so it was very, he's right, it was very absorbing. And I had the devotees in tears, you know. I mean, I'm not saying I did something, but I mean, we had, a, I had them in myself, very absorbed. And uh, in those days also, we were getting, the days he saw, we were getting the Chaitanya Charitamrita right off the press, Ramasar was sending me advanced copies, so we were there reading it, you know, till the wee hours, and uh, the, you know, right off the press, and then we'd have to sell them. We month later, the whole, you know, so many volumes of Adi Lila Volume One would come. <laughs> we had to go sell it at the airport to people. So anyway, those were wonderful times. You know, Thakur was a really nice devotee. He was a very um, integral member of our our party. What happened, you know, is, as I said, the party was supposed to be such that people would come for a month and I would train them and they'd go back to the temples that they'd come from. And the first two devotees that came, the three devotees, there was a devotee named Kasi Ram from Toronto, another one named Giri, Giri, Giri Jadava from Toronto, and who later became Ganapati Swami. Please take prasadam if you have. I've already tasted it, so go ahead. Um, um, and um, um, so there were the three of us. And at the end of the month, it became time for them to go back to their temples. We were attached to one another, you know, in ways that are really meaningful and beautiful, as we should be to one another. I talk about this sometimes, you know, the love between devotees. Mm. Suhidrati. Mm. How it augments the Stayibhav in Leela and how this can be played out in the Sadhaka's life. And should be, and we read about these things in Shaitan Charter, read how dear the devotees are to one another. Well, I had good experience like that, and some some of you probably have too, with God sisters and godbrothers that you served with shoulder to shoulder and made sacrifices. And at the end of the month, I said, "Well, you guys got to go back to your temple." And so I, then they said, "You know, they had a petition they put together, or the three of them they came and said, we think <laughs> here's what we're thinking. You know, it's good that you have devotees come and train here, but you need a staff." <laughs> you need a staff. It shouldn't just be you alone. And, and I was, you know, was very charming, I must say. It was very charming. There's very loving feelings between devotees. So I didn't really steal them from the temples. <laughs> but their hearts were stolen by the program that we had for for serving Prabhupada and distributing these books. Srila Prabhupada, Kijai. Please take Prashad.
I have mm. to tell you that we modeled our Sankatan party on your model. Everybody did. <laughs> I know. Rupanuga once told me, you've got to be careful what you say. Every brahmachari is like hanging on every word. If you get up at 3.05, they'll get up at 3.05. You know, if you read this book at this time. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, well. Yeah. I was uh, trying to explain to some of your disciples how we used to. Basically, there was Prabhupada and then there was Tripurari Swami. Oh, come now. I mean, it was exactly like that. <laughs> you were a book distributor. He was the international book distribution. That was no joke. Absolutely no joke. He was every word we hung on. It was amazing. People would come from America and say, oh, I was just with Tripurari Swami and he said this. We would go, no way, we should say that. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. There were a lot of dedicated people. No doubt. But the good times aren't the past times. They are, but you shouldn't think like that. They're ahead as well. Yes. She said that um, if you were, you just bought the rented, I guess, the house or something. In Santa Cruz, downtown, yeah. Wanted to decorate all the walls. Mm -hmm. um, so they gave you the, the bottom of the pizza and, and said, you know, choose some verses to put on, you know, the walls. And you chose the chapter slogan to put on. On the Bhagavad Gita, yeah. 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 I had never read the Gita. Yeah. I kind of hit the ground running. <laughs> As I say, I was just kind of like waiting for Prabhupada to pick me up. And that was my experience too when I met Prabhupada. First time I saw him, and he appeared to me in a dream before I met him. And it was, you know, he had his cane, and there he was, and I stepped on his heel. He turned around, don't stay too close, and poked his cane at me. And I had that experience, you know, in the waking state, too, later on. <clears throat> but it was very, you know, it was just, it was entirely what he was like and so forth. And, but it was very, you know, it was, it was a strong, but it was very affectionate. Well, I had that dream before I'd met him, um, when I became involved. But, but when I met him first in Los Angeles, when he came in the airport, you know, we would go to the airport to greet him. Was a, you know, those of you who witnessed that was an incredible, incredible experience. Airports were different then. We'd be chanting in the airport, you know. Um, Prabhupada came and landed and walked, and I was fortunate. He looked right at me. You know, he gave me that glance of benediction, and I just felt... I've just met an old friend. Hmm? That was my distinct life. I've known forever. Hmm? And somehow he's come to, you know, like, collect me up again. This is what I'm living for, for this very purpose. Hmm? And I'm meeting him now again after a long time. And I, I'm thinking like that real fast in my mind. And I look, and he, he's nodding his head like it was very, very powerful. And I swear I, I belong, <laughs> belong there. I, I knew what it meant to go back to back to home, to be in a place that was where you belong, so to speak. 
Oh. Well, you know, I guess I thought about it. You know, don't get too close and don't get too far away either. Hmm. There's a way to be close to the Guru, and that you have to learn. Hmm. There's more to say, but suffice to say it was his company was everything. I remember when he used to come in Los Angeles and spend three months or so in the spring and three months in the winter for a couple of years when I was in Los Angeles, maybe 72, 73. And um, the first time he was there for three months and as I recall, it might have been two months, but I think it was three months. And you know, every day, I mean, I would be, if he was coming out of the door to go on the walk, I'd be there. If he was coming back, I'd be there. Every chance to see him and, and be in his company without, you know, um, neglecting my service and so forth. So uh, then one day they told me, the prophet's leaving on Friday, which was like Wednesday. I couldn't. I couldn't imagine. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't. I couldn't. I just couldn't relate to it. I and mean, I was overwhelmed with ecstasy. And then I just. And I, of course, I had read. So I thought this is what it means. Love and separation it was so blissful, <coughs> hmm? but so painful <laughs> at the same time. I couldn't relate to him. Like, he's not going to be here. Like I thought that was. You know, he's here. Where the, you know, you know. Think about it. You know, obviously he has to go, and he's traveling. He's got a mission, but. That was my distinct uh, and overwhelming feeling. Oh. Yeah, I'm in his group. <laughs> I'm in his his forest, his herd. I say that I'm, I'm a member there. He was very kind to me, very generous to me. He would laugh at me. I could understand why. <laughs> I was so sincere and so you know, so foolish at the same time. Mm. He was so little. Mm. But he, was, he saw something in me worth spending some time. And I'm very blessed. And blessed to have all your association. Who blessed is yours? Let's 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 talk about something else. <laughs>